0: It's good to, good to be here, and uh, we've got, I think, uh, about 30 or so people signed up for uh, the second service, so um, well, uh, that's encouraging. Also, more kids at the second service, just in case you're wondering. Something about kids and getting out the door at 8.30 just doesn't seem to work real well. Uh, we've, we're going to be talking a little bit about Palm Sunday today, and so we had the reading, we had the video and then the song, and and uh, I put that song in there. This idea of being plunged into the river of living water, and uh, it really stands in contrast to what took place on Palm Sunday, where uh, we we see as Jesus approaches the crowd, sort of just dip their toes in the water. Uh, it's not until we get to Pentecost in the Book of Acts that we see people ready, literally, to take the plunge uh, for for Jesus. Uh, so. It, it, that was how that came about, but we begin we've been going through this sermon series on the book of Acts and uh, taking it kind of chapter by chapter, sometimes half a chapter at a time. but uh, it, it has I, i'm even though we're doing a, a chapter each week and we're moving through fairly quickly, you know considering how slow I could go with it, I, I still am concerned that uh, there's a chance that we go so slow that we miss the excitement of what is happening in the early days of the church. If we, if we just read the book straight through, it's a very different feeling than if you stop at each verse and break it down. And, and so one of the things you may like to do beginning on the 1st of April is read a chapter a day and uh, get through, there's 28 chapters, you'll get through it in this month. I've suggested that, I think, back in February, but if you didn't do it then, you might like to do it now. Because as we go through this early part of Acts, we're, we're just sort of overwhelmed with the momentum that is happening in this early church. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the first church, it gets us off to a flying start, okay? Peter, Peter under the influence of the Holy Spirit, preaches one sermon and there are 3,000 converts on that day. 3,000 of the, the listeners decide to follow Jesus. And at the end of the chapter, as if that was enough, at the end of the chapter we're told that the Lord added to their number daily, those who were being saved so it's three thousand and counting and then uh, a little later in chapter four the temple authorities arrest Peter and John and you would think oh well now that's going to sort of people are going to be cautious about participating in something that they could get arrested for right I think for you and me that would probably work if I said let's go do donuts in the Walmart parking lot you're like whoa we might get in trouble for that but it wasn't going to happen with this church. It just kept going. Again, we're told in verse 4, many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. number of men who believed grew to 5,000. And after the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, we're told that people were scared, right? But they were scared to, to be worshipping God, uh, to, to follow Him appropriately. And uh, we're told a little after that in chapter 5, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And so it's building momentum, it's growing, it's this snowball that is rolling down a hill. In chapter 6 and verse 7, again, this time there's a dispute between the two factions. We talked about this uh, the last, last week. These two factions of uh, Hebrew-Jewish Christians, Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians and Greek Christians, culturally Greek, Jewish Christians, and it threatened to divide the church. Why aren't our women, our widows, being looked after like their widows are being looked after? It's tension, it's an argument, it's a dispute. Can it be resolved? And it is resolved. And as a consequence of that, we find that the word of God spread. The numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Even the priests. Now that's significant. Maybe it doesn't seem it to you. But in we're used to reading the Gospels where the Pharisees are kind of the opponents to Jesus all the time, right? Well, mostly that happened in the north of the country in Galilee. When Jesus comes to Jerusalem, the Pharisees don't have much of a power base there. The primary opponents of Jesus in Jerusalem are the priests in the temple, the temple authorities, and the Sadducees. They were the those with influence, uh, those, they were the ones who were cozy with the Romans. And so, when, when it says the priests, some of the priests uh, came to following Christ, it's saying that some of the arch enemies of the early movement of Christianity even became Christians as they saw what was taking place in the courtyards of the temple. And so, this spirit fueled um, growth seems unstoppable. It's just been building momentum from Acts 2 or from Acts 1, where they're in an upper room just waiting, all the way through to uh, Acts chapter 6, and verse 7. And then everything changes. And we'll come back to Acts and we'll pick it up. But we're at this moment of change. We're about to finish a section of Acts today. That is the section that deals with the growth of the first church in Jerusalem. And we're going to move on to another stage of the church's life, beginning in chapter 8. What I want to show to you today are some parallels between the events here in Acts chapter 6 and 7 with the life of Stephen. And also the final days of Jesus' life, beginning with... His entrance into Jerusalem in what we call Palm Sunday. So, I missed a slide here. It's going to take me a while to get used to it. And that was Pentecost. So, we're up to here as Jesus enters. And we read that earlier. And so, this passage um, from Luke 19 that was read, and then we had the video, describes this scene that for many of us is familiar. Whether we've seen this, this is a screenshot from a movie whether we've seen this movie or whether we've just pictured it in our brain as we've read this passage over the years. Jesus approaches Jerusalem on a donkey. He's accompanied by raucous crowds covering the roads, we're told in Luke, with uh, their their cloaks that they're laying down for the donkey to walk on. Uh, Other gospels tell us that they were cutting branches, probably palms, and laying them on the road uh, for the donkey to walk. And they were honoring Jesus as a king as they celebrate his entry to Jerusalem. And Jesus participates in this celebration. Jesus was the one who told his disciples to go and get the donkey. And so it was his idea. It's not as though Jesus is somehow disapproving of what happened. He's the one that initiated it. And so as he comes on this donkey to Jerusalem, he is making two statements. The first statement is that he is a king. He is the king. And the reason Palm Sunday is so significant is because the crowds recognize that and the crowds celebrate that. But when we get to verse 41, we come to realize the second truth that Jesus was teaching on this day. So in Luke chapter 19 and verse 41, Jesus has come, or is coming from the Mount of Olives, which is outside the city. And it gave him opportunity to look over Jerusalem. And as he reaches that point on this day when everyone is celebrating, everybody is in a festive mood, he is the man of the hour, the king of the Jews. He stops and he weeps. Because the crowds were looking for a king to use strength and power to overthrow the Romans and restore Jewish independence, to spread their influence throughout the world by force as had been done by so many empires before them. But Jesus came to bring peace, not power. And so he weeps. And he says, Jerusalem, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. I think it's significant the crowds had been crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace and glory to God. That was what Jesus was bringing, not conflict and domination. And they didn't understand that. Even though they cried out, peace and glory in the highest, they were still looking for peace on their terms by their methods. And so the crowd's got half of Jesus' message. But as Jesus looks over the city, he realizes that the city is not going to accept any of his message. The Jewish powers in the city, the powers that be, didn't recognize either the identity of Jesus or understand his mission of peace. Power only sees Power, and they regarded Jesus as a threat to their power. Their very first question, when Jesus enters after he enters the temple, uh, enters Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, and in Luke chapter twenty, we find their first question to him, and it reveals their concern. It's a very telling question, because Jesus is teaching in the courts and proclaiming good news. You would think. Okay, it's going to be a question about this good news. And then in verse 2, we're told that the, or verse 1, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority, by what power are you doing these things? They said, who gave you this authority? So let's have a competition of power. Is the person who said you could do this more powerful than we are? Or do we get to tell you what to do? Us, the guardians of the temple. They feared losing their power. As a consequence, Jesus was killed by the powers that be in the temple that day. As we turn back then to Acts chapter 6, It's important for us to keep in mind Palm Sunday. Jesus is king. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is one of peace. And so here in in Acts 6 and verse 9, we we find a dispute arising in one of Jerusalem's Hellenistic synagogues. Stephen, you might remember just a little earlier, has been appointed to make sure that the Hellenistic widows, Christian widows, are receiving their food and their support. And and he finds himself in a Hellenistic synagogue. It's a synagogue, in particular, of freedmen, of of people who've been slaves but have been freed from their slavery by their masters. Or maybe it's the children of slaves who've been freed. But they come from around the Mediterranean and they're here in this synagogue. And they recognize that what Stephen is teaching is not orthodox Judaism. It's different from what they've been raised on. And and so they are upset. And they have this dialogue with Stephen, this back and forth, but they can't answer him. Like his answers are better than their answers, and they recognize that. But they have this attitude that, that, that says, Stephen... This is the way we've always done it. Uh, We don't know. We can't explain what's wrong with what you're saying, but we know it's wrong because it's not the way it should be. It's different, and you're wrong. And, And we don't have to listen to you. We don't have to engage in this. We're going to keep the status quo the way it has been forever, and you're the one that has to be eliminated. And so they get false witnesses. And they bring these false witnesses before the Jewish council, And they bring Stephen with them. And they begin pointing the finger, doing whatever they have to do to protect their status quo. And the accusations that are made against Stephen are very similar to the accusations that have been made against Jesus not that long before. Also by false witnesses. And those accusations are namely in verse... 11 of uh, chapter 6, if you're following along, there's too much text for me to put this all up this morning. That Stephen, and by association, therefore all of Jesus' followers, spoke blasphemous words against Moses and against God, because he never stopped speaking against this holy place, this holy place, they're doing this in the temple, and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. It's important for us to keep in mind what that accusation is. Did you take note of it? It's that he is blaspheming against Moses, against God, against the temple, and against the law of Moses. So it's sort of saying the same thing in two different ways. Moses and God, the law and the temple. And so, it's perhaps then no, it's the longest speech in the whole book of Acts. Acts is filled with speeches, but Stephen's defense right here is the longest of all of them. And because he's defending himself against this blasphemy of the law and the temple, it's perhaps no surprise that he quotes the Old Testament extensively. Uh, There are direct quotations from Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy. There's the law, right? Also from Amos and Isaiah, direct quotes. There are also allusions, references to events that took place in other Old Testament books, including Leviticus and Numbers. We have a complete set of the Old Testament law. Of Joshua, 1 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Nehemiah, Psalms, Jeremiah, Hosea. And I bet that if I gave you a task of writing... Uh, uh, I don't know, 500-word essay, including quotes from all of those books that would struggle with that, right? But Stephen, as well as being filled with the Holy Spirit and with power and with wisdom, was also filled with knowledge of Scripture and knowledge of God. And so he's able to defend himself. Throughout his speech, that runs from verse 2 in chapter 7 all the way through verse 56, Stephen Stephen speaks of Abraham, of Joseph, and of Moses. And he describes how each of them encountered opposition, how God was trying to work through each of them, but they weren't accepted by those around them. Ultimately, he then points at the temple authorities, probably he uses his pointing finger, and says, you, you are part of this story. But you're not part of the story as Abraham, as Joseph, or as Moses. You are part of the story as the people who opposed God in those stories. I think we need to be careful at this point. Because I think it's very easy for us to read Scripture. And even as we're hearing this story, aren't we siding with Stephen? Aren't we thinking, yes, Stephen, that's it. You're on our team. Stand up against those people that want to suppress the truth, that don't want to listen to you, that are inflexible to any changes, that, that are opposing God. Isn't that who we are? We're Stephen. And yet, perhaps we're also the people with power, that as a newcomer comes into this room, we're the established members. We're the establishment, the people with the power and the authority to decide what happens and takes place within these walls and within this faith community. How do we use that? Are we willing to examine ourselves and say, what if I'm not the hero of every story that I read in Scripture? What if sometimes I'm more like Saul or Goliath than I am like David with his slingshot. And so we need to be careful that we don't read Scripture in a way that always makes us the hero. Because I think Scripture is there to challenge us as many times as it is to endorse us and to affirm our faith. But power likes those stories, it likes that approval, it likes to be told that it's doing the right thing. And so Stephen then continues having pointed out or put them in the story in their particular place that no doubt they didn't appreciate. He continues and says that um, Stephen isn't opposed to the temple. The church has been meeting in the temple. The, church, the temple isn't going to be destroyed until 70 A.D., It is still a place that God comes, that sacrifices are being made. The Jewish Christians not only gather there, but offer sacrifices there. Paul, we know, went to the temple later in in Acts to make sacrifices. And so this Jewish way of worshipping at this point in time is happening in sync with the Christian worship of Jesus. It changes for the Gentiles, and that's a whole whole different story. But Stephen is in no way opposed to the law or opposed to the temple. And I think it's important to see that. Remember, this is a defense against the accusation that he's opposed to both of those things. But Stephen wants the Jewish leaders to recognize a truth about the temple. He quotes Isaiah 66 and If you have your Bible there, it's sort of in, in my Bible at least, it's in special typing that makes it stand out in verse 49. And when he quotes Isaiah, this is, he he also has in mind Solomon, who he mentioned just a little bit earlier. You see, we get used to thinking of the temple as the place where God dwells. And it is. In, In fact, it's his footstool. Is, is a way of thinking about it, that it's the connection point between heaven and earth, between God and His people, there in the Holy of Holies. But even when Solomon built the temple at the inauguration, and in words echoed by Isaiah in 66, they should have understood that although this was a sacred, holy place, it could not contain God could not be put in a box. The authorities may be working for God, but they do not control God. God has always been bigger than the the building, and the authority of these religious leaders is not as great as they think it is. And so as Stephen comes to the climax of his speech, he looks beyond the courtroom in which he stands. He looks up to heaven. And and he sees a greater courtroom. It's as though the the room, the court in which he is standing, in which he has been brought, now the whole court has been brought to the heavenly throne room. And he says, I see the Son of Man, Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. And and it's interesting that he's standing, not sitting. He's ready to take action, perhaps to judge. And so these Jewish rulers, what Stephen is saying is that you are the ones that are on trial, not me. Stephen is confident of where he's going. Stephen is confident of his destiny. Stephen has a bigger picture of what's going on despite the persecution, despite the opposition, despite the false accusations being brought against him, despite that maybe he already knows that he's going to be uh, murdered in just a, a few minutes or hours. Despite all of that, he has this perspective that God is still in control because Jesus is still at the right hand of the Father in heaven and it's the Jewish leaders, it's their court that is on trial, not him. For Stephen, it is a moment of of witness, a moment of testifying to his faith. For them, it is a trial. Well, this was too much for the Jewish leaders to think that a man, Jesus, could stand in the presence of God was clearly blasphemy to them. God was too holy to allow that to happen. And so they seize Stephen and they kill him. These events and their parallels with the death of Jesus should serve as a stark reminder to us of the danger that we face of pursuing power. Whether we're talking about the ancient kings of Israel or um, God's people have very often been captivated by power. Those kings were pursued power not listening to God, doing their own thing. And then there could be the Jewish leaders here um, in the time of Stephen and Jesus. It could be the Roman governors who converted to Christianity but continued to expand their empire. It could be the medieval European kings and the Crusades. Or perhaps there's some event that's more recent, But Christians have not been exempt from the pursuit of power. Power is often accompanied with violence, cruelty, and dishonesty, all of which we see here in the story of Stephen. In contrast, Jesus and Stephen, they demonstrate for us a path of peace, a path on a donkey, like Jesus who, on the cross, committed his spirit to God the Father. In verse 59 of Acts 7, Stephen prays, Lord Jesus Receive my spirits." He was confident that this wasn't the end of his story. Again, as we keep reading, as, as the stones are being hurled at Stephen, he eventually drops to his knees the perhaps the pain, broken bones, I don't know, too much for him. With his last breath he cries out following Jesus' command to pray for those who abuse you. From Luke 6. He cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Echoing again Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I believe we see in Stephen's death, evidence of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how else he could utter those words. His people pelted him with stones. Father, don't hold this against them. And so the Holy Spirit that was with Jesus on the cross, that helped him stay on the cross through the pain, through the mocking for us. It's the same Holy Spirit that's with Stephen. Stephen has that same experience and response, following a path of peace and forgiveness, giving glory to God. And then in chapter 8, the first couple of verses there, Luke really makes the point that now the church's honeymoon is over. Power has tasted violence and it has a bloodlust. It's on a roll. Because on that day, with the death of, of Stephen, the uneasy tension that had existed in Jerusalem boils over and we're told that a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And everyone, except the apostles, was scattered. That growth day after day, people being added, 3,000, 5,000 men, whatever the number was at the end, the mass gatherings in the temple courtyard, it's all over. They're scattered. There's 12 left in Jerusalem. But the die has been cast. Because Jesus is a king. Palm Sunday was true. The celebration was legitimate. Jesus is the king. A king on a donkey, a king who brings peace, not power. A king who saves from sin, not from Romans. A king who came to serve. And Stephen demonstrates through the Holy Spirit that, he, that the Holy Spirit gives us the power, the strength, the perspective that we need to walk that road of peace in Jesus' footsteps. It's a somber story. It begins with Abraham. It begins, it travels through time as God's people have encountered opposition, as people have been willing to dip their toes into that river of living water, but not to take the plunge, to acknowledge sometimes the identity of Jesus, but not the mission. At other times, do I acknowledge neither of? But for the church for the followers of jesus we acknowledge both the identity and the mission And when we do that the holy spirit gives us the power to walk that difficult road of peace we're going to have lord's supper at this point